my friend. Thanks so much for coming out. I tell you what, I'm going to let you find a nice calm station to play while we hang out here by the fire. I'm going to run back inside and get the carafe of coffee. I'll be right back. Hey, you're listening to Guat.Rocks, God, the world, and other things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. This is Season 17, Episode 366, title, Other Things with Julia Lee Wald. Subtitle, A Successful TV Film Writer Tells Her Story. Julia Roberts Lee Wald is a highly accomplished Hollywood writer, producer, whose IMDb of film credits is vast. I had the privilege of getting to know Julia back in our high school days through our mutual involvement in the high school band. The requirements and commitment it took to be a part of that rigorous program helped shape who we are today. Her parents were kind people who willingly opened their home to the entire band. You'll hear more about their influence on Julia and house guests like me. Julia was so kind to give me a travelogue on how a kid from Morrisdale Estates in Euless, Texas, grew up to penetrate the Hollywood scene and become a highly successful television and movie writer focusing on animation and children's series. Early in her career, she wrote for the Disney Afternoon series, which was a created for syndication two-hour programming block of animated television series that included Chippendale Rescue Rangers, The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Tailspin, Darkwing Duck, Goof Troop, Gargoyles, The Goliath Chronicles, and Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. She is co-author with her husband, Eric Leewald, of the new book, X-Men, The Art and Making of the Animated Series. Her husband and industry partner, Eric Leewald, is a highly successful writer-producer as well. His development work, writing supervision, and creation of original story material helped make X-Men, the animated series, which aired from 1992 to 1996, the most successful animated series of its time. Eric's first book published about the X-Men, the animated series, is titled Previously on X-Men, The Making of an Animated Series. Both books are available on Amazon and other book distributors everywhere. There are a lot of cool takeaways from this conversation. The goal of Other Things With is to encourage and inspire, and this conversation hits the bullseye in every way. Now here is Other Things with Julia Leewald. You can also find the link to the YouTube channel in the show notes. So here we go. Other Things with Julia Leewald. Enjoy. Hey, thank you so much. I want to welcome you to Other Things with, and our guest today is Other Things with Julia Leewald. Now, let me say right up front that she is the original Julia Roberts. Okay. Her name is actually Julia Roberts. Take it away, Julia. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, boy, howdy. It, it's such a treat to be talking with you, Kenny, because we go back a number of years and, and the older one gets more one appreciates someone who kind of knew you then, you know, knew you in the way back. And yeah, I, I was the, I am the original Julia Roberts, but, but some young actress came along and, uh, sort of muscling in on my territory. So, uh, fortunate found a spectacular man who, Still miraculously uh, wanted to get married. Uh, so it's now Julia Leewald. Julia Leewald. And I yeah. tell you, uh, I'm so excited because I found out uh, going forward that a friend of mine said, hey, you know, Julia's in Hollywood and she's a writer. And I said, well, that's awesome because uh, we want to kind of start with a history because I, I want to say, and this is a point for everyone to remember, that how we live when we're young 
uh, people remember when you get older. And so I have nothing but fond memories of, of Julia Roberts because she is an amazing person. Uh, we, I knew her from high school band and uh, she was, I guess, a, a year ahead of me. What year did you graduate, Julia? Class of 76. Yeah. So she was just a year ahead of me and, but always a very nice person. And what's cool is that her parents uh, were always so gracious to open up her home to us in Morrisdale Estates, which at that time, that was the most premium zip code area in Euless. Oh but, uh, but Julia, tell me a little bit, because what I remember uh, that your parents were both doctors. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. And it was, uh, I take, you know, the uh, daughter's pride in that, that, but both my parents were doctors. I'm going to hold this up again. We're going way back. This is before I was born, but this is a photograph of uh, their medical school class. Uh, they University of Wisconsin, but did internship at Indiana. And the only female you see in there turns out to be my mom and married that guy right there. My dad, they met there. Uh, I, I guess I bring that up just in the fifties. Women were not, um, doors were not open for women in a lot of ways. And here we are 2023. And I'm still going to say doors are not necessarily open for women the way they might be, but 70 years later and the field of medicine, I think, I heard somewhere there are now more female doctors than male doctors, you know, and it's like, wow, you know, and to think that it kind of started there with uh, my parents way back when, but then they both ended up um, to moving from Wisconsin down to Texas. And that's eventually how we ended up in U.S. And that's also eventually how I uh, ended up going to Central Junior High and then Trinity High School. And my fondest, Fondest memories. Shout out to Mr. Nugent. Tom Nugent. Band. It, it is remarkable to me how much band, uh, what kind of groundwork that laid for me. <laughs> Kenny, I'm going to, how, how, how hot did it get out there on those practice fields? <laughs> I'm telling you. Now, let me ask you, your, your parents, what uh, types of physicians were they? Oh, okay, we've got a family joke here. My mother, um, board certified psychiatrist, and my dad, board certified radiologist. And the joke was, she could see through him and he could see through her. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, let me insert uh, that uh, Julia, of course, uh, our class, our classes back then were real large in our high school um, around normally around 800 graduating. And Julia was at the very top of the class. And uh, I tell you, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. What number were you? Oh, number three came in number three. My, my elbows weren't quite sharp enough, but yeah, Debbie Fuller and Carol Sieberling uh, uh, are one and two there, but I'm number three. <laughs> now, and if we can, if we have to all edit this out, but do you feel comfortable with me telling the story, the Barry Manilow story? Well, let me, let me hear what the Barry Manilow story. Oh well, the, the, night that I, the night that I came over to visit and y'all were trying to find Barry. Can I tell that story? Uh, go ahead. Cause I think it's okay. Th this story is an example of the type of girl that Julia is and was woman, uh, because she was very smart. And so I used to go over to their house a lot. Uh, her parents were very kind. Uh, what's interesting is when we would have band parties, which they hosted a lot, the parents were just kind of, and of course, all the people we hung out there were cool people. There wasn't a lot of shenanigans, but anyway, so I go over there one night and they answer the door and then they usher me upstairs 
uh, to their office and I say, hey, what's going on? And Jennifer's like, shh, shh, you know, and so Julia is on the phone and Jennifer, her sister is typing on a typewriter and they're like motioning to me to be quiet. And so it's like, okay, something's going on here. And then Julia, they made several phone calls and she says, yes, this is so-and-so I'm with such and such uh, sound company. We're calling to verify that Mr. Manilow is at this hotel. They finally got a taker and they said, great. Okay. We needed to know where to, to deliver the equipment. So they hung up the phone and Julia said, you know, we've got to go. Uh, you know, we went to the concert tonight, but we're going to go see Barry Manilow. So they actually ended up seeing him in the lobby, like at two o'clock in the morning. And uh, so, you know what I'm saying, folks, this is the type of creativity and genius as a high school student uh, that they were able to work to be able to uh, make something happen. But uh, anyway, I love that you were there for that moment. And, and we also just still a diehard Barry Manilow fan, but the good old Palantir was our school newspaper back then. I don't know if that was, I, I was, I worked on it, you know, it was just a thing to do, but <laughs> my sister and I made ourselves fake press passes, cutting bits and pieces of the star telegram and the Palantir just to say, if we got caught in the hotel, Oh, no, we're press. We're here with press. <laughs> uh, well, as a matter of fact, when I reached out to her through Facebook, uh, you know, I private messaged her and she said, of course, as any of us would, like, is this the actual Kenny Price that I know? Like, how do I know that this is not, you know, this this is real? And so I shared with her that story. And then she came back and she said, you couldn't believe it. But uh, But also, one of the reasons why she's on the program today, first of all, uh, we're going to delve a little bit into her her life story on how uh, a girl from Morrisdale Estates in Euless, Texas, ends up in Hollywood and ends up becoming a prolific uh, movie writer and uh, television writer, and mainly in children's animation, which I think is pretty cool. And so before I forget about it, uh, she has a book and it came out in uh, 2020, uh, 2020? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, October 2020. And uh, her, boy, there you go. He's got it right there. Yeah. And, and her and her husband, Eric, are the uh, authors of this book, Eric and Julia Leewald. And I tell you, she was kind enough to send this to me as a gift. And uh, it took me some time to read it. Of course, you can see it's a vast book. Uh, <laughs> it's really the kind of book you would want to leave out, like on your coffee table. Uh, my, my youngest son wants to look at it as soon as we're finished doing the show. But uh, I tell you, it's more than just... Uh, the title of it is uh, X-Men, the art and making of the animated series. It um, is published, uh, copyrighted 2020 by Marvel, published 2020 by Abrams of New York. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing that we're going to drill down to uh, quite a bit today, of course, uh, Eric was the main, the mind of that show. But the thing about it is, is um, you know, Julia had a major part in putting this book together and writing the book. But the big thing, folks, is the human interest story that is wound all throughout this book. And it has a lot to say today. Uh, we're in the middle. I guess the strike is still going on, the writer's strike. Uh, we're happily to report the writer's strike has been wrapped up. Thank goodness. Unfortunately, the SAG after strike, uh, the actor strike is dragging oh. on. And boy, this. So there are things need to change. And I'm so proud of the Writers Guild for for um, accomplishing what the Writers Guild accomplished. And I'm 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 
just got my fingers crossed SAG-AFTRA can um, be as productive for its members as well. Yeah, so the writer strike went on for quite a while, and we're going to oh. talk about that. But anyway, the, the cool thing is, is that, uh, you know, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but when you read this book and what they talk about, the human story behind the making of animation, you, you see the importance of uh, somebody like Eric, who really wrote Hurt over the series for five years. And uh, it's been the top series, animated series ever done for television. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. But before we do, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I want to hear uh, Julia's story on how you got from Morristale Estates, Trinity High School. Where did you go to school? How did you get to L.A.? What was your first gig there? And we're going to talk about a lot of the stuff that you've been involved in writing. Before I forget about it, as I was looking up before we got on the air, uh, there's an app called Muppet uh, Muppet Wiki, and you're on there, and then it's got all your stuff listed. And so we're going to talk about all that. But anyway, tell me your story, Julia, of how you got from Euless, Texas to Hollywood, California. Boy, it, it, it just for, for folks who are wondering, ooh, can you know, that sounds like fun. I want to do that too. Let me, the, the, the big caveat up front is it takes some time, it, it <laughs> took a while. Uh, and and I didn't even dream of moving to Hollywood and uh, making a life trying to do something within the entertainment industry. I, I just didn't think people did that. I thought, you know, you were born out there and that's what you did in Los Angeles. And in Texas, I was perfectly content to sort of figure, well, I'll, okay, I'll go to college and uh, I assume I'll do a graduate school program, both my parents had, you know, and it's like, well, you know, it could be medicine, could be law, could be journalism, you know, but I assumed I'd have a post-grad program just because that's what my family had done. And okay, you know, and like you said, I was third in my class. So I figured, <laughs> okay, all right, you know, this can be done. Uh, I'm not, not to be smirched here, but I ended up um, attending Texas Tech University which is in Lubbock, Texas. And this is 1976 when I end up going out to Lubbock. And it, it is the large, I think it's the largest campus, maybe even in the world, just because it, it is on the edge of the great American desert. And it is a, a big uh, animal husbandry university. Probably not the right fit for me, but I'm there. And they have um, a, a, a wonderful English department. So I'm, I'm still figuring, okay, medical school, law school, some kind of grad school, you know, just trying to, <laughs> um, telling tales on myself, uh, senior year there, there was some prom dance event and went to that and came back the next morning to take my the GRE is the graduate school test that you're supposed to take to get you into those schools. Like, oh, that, that was probably not my smartest move, <laughs> partying the night before taking that kind of test. But it, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it, it came down, there were, I, there's a specific moment, a, a specific moment when, when things changed. And had gone on an ill-advised ski trip with some gal pals to Rio Dosa, New Mexico, my senior year and shattered my leg, shattered my leg first day skiing. So I'm in a 
cast up to my hip and I'm going to be in that cast for at least half a year. I'm telling you that now. Didn't know it then, but I'm, I'm, I'm making my way around the world's largest campus, you know, on crutches, going, uh, trying to figure out, okay, now it's time to start maybe considering applying for the graduate school programs that I always kind of planned that I might try and get into. I, I don't mean to come off cocky. I'm not, there's no assumption I was going to get into medical school or law school, but that, that was or journalism or whatever, but that I would attempt to go for a master's or doctorate, just something. And I'm in a, this is, this is that long ago. I am in uh, a record store parking lot and a friend I'd met, uh, she, uh, she had done music and a gal named Cindy Hall. And she sees me in the parking lot, comes over and we're talking and she goes, you know what? I'm, cause she was a little bit older. She's gotten, uh, I think her teaching credentials. I'm moving to Santa Paula, California, and I hear they pay people to write in Hollywood. And you like to write. Do you want to move out to Do you want to move out to California with me? And in that moment, it's like, wait, you can do that. You can, you can, you can do that. You can just make that kind of life pivot. So talked with talked it over with my parents who. Bless you for remembering them. I, I love that you remember them. Uh, <laughs> they were always supportive, um, always concerned, <laughs> always supportive whether or not they understood what I was trying to do. But I, my, my brilliant master plan to them was, hey, if I can get into uh, a law school, a medical school, or a journalism school out in Los Angeles, would, would you guys help me do that financially and then by the time I'm out of that class or that school then I'll be able to you know cover my own costs and we'll spend those years trying to figure out how to become a paid writer in Los Angeles while I'm doing this other thing uh and okay well what do you got <laughs> And, oh, I'm sorry, it was medical school. It was, it could I get into film school, film school or law school or journalism school? Figuring those would get me closer to whatever people who knew what they were doing were doing in, in Los Angeles. So I applied, didn't get into film school, didn't get into journalism school, but I got into youth, I got into Southwestern University School of Law. It's like, okay, I'll go to law school. Moved out here, still in a full leg hip cast, didn't know a soul. And I just say that because, you know, people do that. It's, it's what I did. I came out here, um, started law school. This is way back in this, the interweb wasn't even an imaginary thing. You know, that was we weren't even pretending that could happen. That was that was Star Trek science fiction. That was not a thing that was possible. So while doing law school, uh, trying to sort of figure out how, how, what do you do? How do you, how do you, how do you break in? You know, what do you do to break in? How do, how do you get, how do you get that chance? How do you get that opportunity? And you're know, writing my, okay, you need to have spec script material. So if someone asks you, you know, if you want to, if you're, you know, do you, you, what that meant is you need to sit home alone and write a, write your own either half hour, episode of a comedy or your own one hour episode of a drama 
so that uh, if the opportunity ever comes, you can say, yeah, I can write, here's my spec script. And you need just constant writing to have a stack of material. So uh, <laughs> meeting people, just trying to find out how do you do this? How do you break, break in? So this is, I move out here, start law school, August 13th, 1980. And I want folks to keep that in mind because <laughs> the overnight success was 10 years in coming. 10 years. So I graduate law school and I, and I pass the bar and, and I start practicing in copyright, patent, and trademark, figuring, okay, this is important information that, like versus going into criminal law or, you know, copyright, patent, and trademark, that's part of this whole entertainment thing. Maybe I can learn a few things while I'm doing this. And then, um, kind of reaching the point where either I commit to law full-time because it's you know, the money's getting better or or I save enough money and then just try and crack crack the writing market and I still don't know how but I'm gonna try so that decision um I I, I stopped practicing law and started getting a little more I, I found I found a job as a PA that's a production assistant and as a runner, uh, gopher for a commercial production company that made commercials. It's like I'm meeting people and I'm, you know, getting up at three in the morning to go set up the craft service table or whatever, you know, this is all freelance stuff. And I'm entering back then there were the, you would hear about or see, um, on a post somewhere that there's a, a writing contest, you know, so, so I'm sorry, I, I need to, I need to take a breath and let Kenny get in here, but, um, no, don't, don't, don't. I'm, I'm loving it. And I tell you, it's just like Julia to, she's to top everything else. She was a certified, uh, bona fide lawyer. So keep going. <laughs> so I had written a, um, a, a, my own pilot for a comedy script. So it wasn't a spec script for a show that was on the air. It was a pilot for my own original idea. And the a fellow who was running Charles in charge, had a had a competition, you know, send in your send in your spec pilots, you know, let's see how you know. Never heard a word. So okay, fine. Keep going, keep doing the freelance work, keep keep writing, keep trying to figure out what I'm trying to do. <laughs> this this is this is going back a ways, but at one afternoon my, my phone rings in my apartment and I'm like, you know, in my underpants, you know, I said, well, yeah, I'm not dressed for the occasion. That's what I'm saying. I'm sloppy. I guess my phone rings, you know, hello. And he goes, hi, is, is this Julie? Yes, it is. Well, this is Alan Thick. It's like, wait, 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 what? Who? How? It was Alan Thick. Why? Why? Why is Alan Thick calling me on the phone? Okay, going again back into the 80s, Alan Thick was at that time starring uh in uh oh i just flew out of my head he had a tv series a half hour sitcom oh, was it growing pains with uh growing pains. The kirk cameron wasn't it yep sure was yeah. so he it turns out that the fellow who was doing charles in charge was also some involved in, in growing pains and he thought my script was funny enough he passed it on to alan thick to see if it was funny enough for alan thick alan thick was <laughs> alan thick was looking for writers who could help him uh, jazz up his comedy bits so that when he would go on The Tonight Show and the various talk shows, he would have 
quite a little bon mots too, you know, little anecdotes to share with the audience. So that was like, I got invited to write comedy bits for Alan Thicke for when he, what is happening to my life? Okay, all right, I'm in, I'm in, this is my big break. Well, it got me in the next, it boosted me into the next level where I was meeting other people who were doing these kinds of things. And uh, I, I, I got to go to The Tonight Show the night that Alan Thicke was a guest and I got to listen to him, watch him, you know, share a, a, you know, a joke I'd written. And it was that feeling was like, can I just keep doing this over and over? Well, Alan Thicke doesn't need me every night to write comedy bits to go on Johnny Carson every night. So um, still scrambling. Uh, was told by some people, uh, if you're going to be a writer, uh, take an acting class or take an improv class because you need to learn how it feels to talk on stage and say the words that maybe you'll be putting on paper and what you're asking the actors and the performers to do. So I joined, um, didn't join Groundlings, uh, but joined LA Connection. And that was also a game changer, met fantastic people, learned, you know, more about language and rhythm and setting up something. And again, introduction, introduction, meeting people. And I'll take a breath here and say, by the way, folks, this, this, is, this is 10 years in the making from the day I got out and started law school. I would encourage you when you can just be nice. I just put that out there. Be be a decent human being. And it, it can it can pay off. So I'm working as a production assistant at a commercial house, and one of the gal friends that I make there invites me to join the softball team. Well, I can't play softball, but uh, you know, it's experience, there's you know, camaraderie. And I meet a woman there, a gal there, who is uh, writing for the then brand new Disney afternoon. Uh, she is writing uh, Gummy Bears and Chippendales Rescue Rangers. Wow, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how you write for animation. I, I can do a live action spec comedy or a live out, you know, half hour or an hour drama, but I, I don't know how you write for animation, but God, that man, wow. And she said, and they're gearing up and you don't have to have an agent to go in and pitch. What? You don't have to have an agent to go in and pitch. That sounds like me not having an agent at that point, because that's a whole other challenge, getting an agent in Los Angeles. So went in and met Tad Stone and Bryce Malick, who were the uh, showrunner producers on Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. And they were gracious enough to give me uh, their Bible, which is the sort of the um, the the writer's guide to what the show is about, and a couple sample scripts. And I went in, I'm not kidding here, every Friday for about six months, pitching them, pitching them, pitching them, these ideas, coming up, trying to come up with a story that would fit for Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. What, what if it's this? What if it's that? They were very gracious with their time. Uh, Finally, one day I, and I was starting to figure out how this, how this works. You know, what, how do you come up with a story that matters for your characters? You can have stuff blowing up. You can have, you know, big things happening, but what is going on for your characters? How do you make that matter? And I came up with one idea, but they went, well, there's, there might be something there. 
and they said, would you like to take this to outline? Yes, please. Took it to outline, brought in the outline, and boy, they had notes. <laughs> Gave me the notes, and they said, well, would you be interested in taking this to first draft? Yes, please. Went home on my IBM Selectric, which, again, this is way back. This is almost Fred Flintstone. Not even computer, just typewriter, trying not to make too many mistakes. Wrote the first draft, came back. We have some notes. Would you be interested in going to second draft on this? Yes. So I took all the notes, went back, wrote a second draft, came back. And they said, we, we have a vacancy here at one of our desks. Uh, and we're looking to hire writing staff. Would, would you be interested in joining the staff? Aruga, aruga. Yes, please. So I got hired to write for Disney for three years there. Everyone at that time was getting like a three-year general contract to work on what was then the Disney afternoon. So I got to write, I ended up writing 14 episodes of Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. And then there was Goof Troop, and then there was Darkwing Duck, and then there was Winnie the Pooh. And I know I'm missing something here, but uh, I got to write for those shows for Disney and it was an amazing time. Then after the... <laughs> Then after, I, I, and I'm forgetting to mention that uh, someone else who was on staff at Disney at that time, someone named Eric Leewald. In fact, he had taken a leave of absence. His was a desk that was open because he was off producing a live action movie. So he comes back after his leave of absence and then we meet and um, I, my contract's wrapping up in the 90, early 90s as is his. And by the way, I was completely against trying to date someone in the office because it was going to blow my dream job. <laughs> but we were grown adults. We were both writers. He was not my superior. I was not his superior. We were, we were teammates. So we get married in 1990. We, have let, we leave Disney, both of us, when our contracts wrap up. He, he, he enters the freelance universe ahead of me. Um, and he... La, 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 la. He gets tapped to story edit the second season of a show called Beetlejuice, which was moving to the brand new Fox Kids Network. In the meantime, we'd had our first child and I was pregnant with our second baby and I was freelancing on other shows. There was one called Dog City. There was a show called Crow. And just writing free, when I, if I could get hired from somebody, you know, hire it to write an animated script. And then Eric gets the call uh, that Fox is developing a show and they want him a story editor uh, and there's a big meeting coming up. But uh, and it's only for one season, but, but a story editor job is different than a writer's job because a story editor job means you get to work on the 13 or the 26 or however many episodes are for that season. So you got um, a longer guaranteed paycheck versus being a freelancer on a show where you get paid for your script. So it's like, great, he'll, he'll take the job. We've got one little one, another on the way. And uh, he's told it's going to be for a, a show called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Okay, he'll, he'll do that. He can, he can do that. Fine, no problem. And then as he related in the book, the Sunday night before that Monday morning meeting, he gets a call saying, no, you're not going to be doing that when you're coming in for a different meeting tomorrow. Okay. You're coming in because we are going to develop a project with Marvel for an animated show for X-Men, the comic book. And there it goes. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> Again, hangs up the phone and says to me, okay, 
uh, it's a show called X-Men. Um, is that Marvel or DC? You know, it's like, we're not comic book people. We don't know anything about this. He goes in for the meeting. There is Stan Lee. There, there, uh, there, it's a room full of people in from New York, from Marvel. Uh, then also uh, uh, folks from Fox Kids Network and uh, folks on the production art side, including Will Minio, who's the genius guy who designs every uh, art and pr art producer, designer extraordinaire, and Larry Houston, uh, producer director, also a phenomenal artist. They knew Marvel chapter and verse. They could quote you anything because they were huge fanboys. Eric didn't know anything. So he was just, okay, good. Yeah, okay, we can do that. Okay, fine. And then was given the task, okay, we need a Bible to get the show off the ground and we need it in two weeks. Just by, uh, to give you some background on that, uh, good old Batman, the animated series, which is a gold standard show. They had had six months to develop their Bible. Eric <laughs> was told, you have two weeks. Because we had friends who worked on Batman. It's like, oh my God, they had so much more time and they had so much more money. Um, but, but so that was how we all found ourselves, Eric and I dropped into what became X-Men. And I say that, that it was so wonderful. And, and so Eric and his head writer guy, Mark Edens, his buddy from Tennessee, from University of T Tennessee, Knoxville, who had moved out also to work in animation or just, just to work in writing. Uh, there, it wasn't glamorous. There were no offices for anybody. Uh, they sat down at our dining room table and, and I would be there too because that's where we lived and we would bounce ideas about what to do with these characters, how to craft the show. And so Eric and Mark came up with um, the, the Bible and the framework for what became X-Men, the animated series. And, and I got to write episodes for it and pitch for it. And now something you said, something you said that uh, some may not pick up, mm. but uh, something I found really interesting is that at this meeting uh, and many of you may not know, but the attack of the killer tomatoes was a very famous midnight movie along uh, the absurd level of a Rocky horror picture show. And uh, it's just what we did back in those days as teenagers. We'd go to the midnight movie and watch an absurd movie and have fun. And so she's talking about they were going to do an animated series based on the movie. Um, but then they get the call thinking they're going in to talk about the attack of the killer tomatoes. And instead, it's to pitch uh, in front of Stan Lee. And in case you most people probably know that name, but he is the creator of the Marvel world. And so uh, I think the. The, the humor in this is that, uh, and as she points out in the book, uh, this is pre-internet, pre-computer, no way to check anything out from the time they get the phone call till uh, the next morning when they're meeting with all of these power brokers and the creator of the series. And then Eric has got to pitch to them why they should be given uh, the opportunity to do the show. And he succeeds at that. And so um, a lot of tension uh, an amazing thing because, uh, you know, Stan Lee's kind of a hero on the, or absolutely a hero in the comic world. But, uh, uh, how exactly did it happen to snag it, especially in front of all these people? Uh, do you know of anything that was said that was maybe a pivot point in the story to where, I mean, the Stan Lee feels comfortable with y'all and I say, Eric, but you're right there. And as you point out in the book, 
you you were throughout the series uh, in an advisory role working throughout all five years. So is there anything that, that stands out in your mind of why, uh, because you couldn't, you know, bluff your way into in saying, you know, we, Hey, we, we, we live and breathe Marvel. So do you have any idea what it was to where it clicked with Fox, where it clicked with Stan Lee and his team, uh, anything in particular, maybe that stands out just as a side note. Funny point about attack of the killer tomatoes. <laughs> um, Hardcore fans of, of the X-Men may remember that there had been uh, a, a one-off episode made called um, Pride of the <clears throat> Pardon me, Pride of the X-Men. And that had been Marvel's own effort at creating a pilot that they'd hoped would go out there and oh, oh, we get it. You know, we're gonna buy that. That's gonna be our new series. Yay, Pride of the X-Men. And uh, Margaret Lesh and uh, Larry Houston and Will Minio had all been involved in that production because they all worked at Marvel Productions at that point out here in Los Angeles. And Margaret Lesh, Margaret Lesh was out there pitching this, couldn't 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 give it away. There was there was no interest from any of the networks, uh, and the networks were at that time ABC, NBC, CBS. So it is uh, Pride of the X Men. It exists. It's out there. It ran, but it ran once or twice, and then went into repeats. But it never sold. So that's happening over here. Then Eric's doing the work he's doing, and I'm doing the work I'm doing. And then he gets tapped to do the second season of um, Ah Beetlejuice, and is now working for the president of Fox Kids who is now Margaret Lesh. Margaret Lesh from Marvel got hired to be the president of the brand new network Fox Kids. So Eric's doing something a little edgier with the second season of Beetlejuice, you know, sensibility wise, you know, his story editing there. Then, Mar then Margaret Lesh says, to, you know, internally, we're gonna do an X-Men series. I, I had the opportunity before with Marvel and it, it didn't work. I'm now in charge of Fox Kids. I want to make this show. So among the folks in that tight inner circle there, someone named Sydney Iwaner uh, was her second in command. So Margaret and Sydney uh, were working with Eric on Beetlejuice. And about oops, eight years earlier, Eric and Sydney had worked together uh, at, uh, I'm losing the names right now, um, Hanna-Barbera. So Again, be nice. But so Sydney and Eric had uh, had a had a solid working relationship, and then moving forward, and then with this opportunity for X Men, uh, Margaret and Sydney felt that Eric had shown a certain kind of sensibility with Beetlejuice and the other stuff that would be the right fit for what they wanted to do with what became X Men, and that's. And, and they had used Attack of the Killer Tomatoes as a cover to get him in place and to get uh, Will and Larry in place because they didn't want anybody else out there knowing that they were going to try this until they were ready to announce it. So Will and Larry knew before, <laughs> well before Eric did, that um, this was they were going to try to make this thing happen. But, in, and you mentioned, you know, five years of X-Men, the animated series. 
uh, Margaret, she had a boss above her. And her boss had no confidence in an X-Men animated show. And had said to her, if the, okay, tell you what, Margaret, I'll give you 13 episodes, but I'm, we're going to assume this is going to crash and burn. When this crashes and burns, you're out as president of Fox Kids. Are you prepared to do that? Will you risk, will you, will you put your job on the line to get these 13 episodes? And Margaret, she said, yes, I will do it. So none, none of us were signed up for more than 13 episodes because the folks that I've heard just assumed the show was going to implode. And good night, nurse. There were so many times it almost did. But Margaret held fast. Uh, Will and Larry, who had had the chance to work on Pride of the X-Men and had really wanted that show to go, but at that time had people above them who were like jamming in the wrong ideas. For this show for Fox Kids, everyone was in the right place to say, no, if you need to remove me, I understand. But I will not stay working on the show if you try and make that change or if you order me to do this thing. Because they had seen it happen on Pride of the X-Men, they weren't going to do it now. And those, the fact that so many people were willing to, to make that stand and, and do it, I, I look back on that now and go, that, uh, the guts and, and the courage to, to, put, to put something artistic out like that and to put your own career on the line for that. It's a testament to, to the to the talent and the taste of the people who help make X-Men work. Now, let me ask you, you saying that, uh, something that stood out to me is um, that right after the show started, Eric received uh, some communiques from, I guess, the person above, um, let's see, what's her name? Uh, oh, Margaret. Margaret. Mm -hmm. Above Margaret and uh, basically trashing the episode and then also calling for a total rewrite. Uh, in your world, is that common or was that unusual? Or was it just their attitude that was poor against what you were trying to do? <laughs> the, 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 the moment when that, uh, the memo, the moment the memo um, appeared, Marvel Comics itself was based out of New York. And Marvel Productions was happening here in Los Angeles, and Fox Kids was in L.A. So, again, go in the Wayback Machine, children. There was no internet. There was no interweb. You could barely fax. No one had anybody's phone numbers for anything after business hours or over the course of a weekend. So I believe that Eric received that memo late for us on a Friday afternoon, which meant all offices were closed over the course of the weekend. And I know it sounds crazy in this day and age when there's instant communication constantly, but that, that memo was demanding changes that everybody out here in Marvel production world, oh God, no, 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 no. Um, that would have been, no one, it, it, it could have, it would, have, it would have blown the project up. But uh, again, in, in a way, thanks to the fact that there was not instant communication, there also wasn't any immediate flame war saying, what do you mean about the nah, nah, nah? Instead, uh, Will Minio took it upon himself to go through the, uh, the person's memo line by line and explain 
why the show was doing this or how if that suggestion had been taken, it would pull the thread and, and it would fall apart over here. And then he got it back to the guy by Monday and a little cooling off period and okay. So the crises that could have that could have derailed this show were happening almost weekly. <laughs> and one wrong person with power in the wrong job and it could have derailed the entire project. So it's it's kind of a good side note based on where we live now that we're you know we pretty much like everything to be instant but that's a good example to where the time that was forced upon them because they didn't have the, the ability to talk and to instantly communicate, uh, someone kept their head. What's his name within your system? Will Minio. Yeah, Will Minio. And so instead of allowing it to be an offense, he went to work basically uh, dismantling the objections. And so, um, and with that, the show continued. And uh, so now, in that regard, as far as in your experience, Julia, in your writing, in your career, is that kind of thing normal or is that unusual in your, I mean, is that something you expect to happen I mean, that you have to deal with on a regular basis or how do you see that? Oh, <laughs> if the question is, do you, do, um, do you expect various hand grenades and, you know, and banana peels to get thrown in front of you on a production? You just do. That's the nature of the beast. There are so many moving parts involved in making anything whether it's live action comedy live action drama whether it's a feature film or a commercial whether it's animation there are so many moving parts and pieces and there are so many people who feel that they have the biggest stake in the project and there are people who control the money <laughs> trying to keep all those people happy and trying to um come up with a clear vision and path for whatever that project is. It, 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 it takes a fair amount of diplomacy and uh, uh, that's, that's part of learning how to do what it is we do. Um, and that's not a small part. And uh, my husband, Eric, just came in and we were talking, you know, I've, I've written or story editor, over at least 40, 40, 40 series, I think. Uh, I'd, I'd be honored if, if Eric wants to join us. That'd be oh, great. I don't want to. I don't want <laughs> to make him feel like he has to or, or <laughs> nothing like that. But uh, no, he. Hey, this is all story. Oh, right there, right there, honey. Hey, just, just, just in the office uh, feeding the dog. <laughs> don't want to interrupt. Great to meet you, Eric. I'm Kenny Price. Oh, very nice to meet you. Oh, I tell you, to, um, Eric, uh, your Tennessee background. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Uh, grew up in Nashville. My dad taught at UT. Right, so, and I understand that you were honored here just a few years ago by the university uh, for your there, lifetime achievements. And uh, there were a few of us that, that that all met there back way back when, and <laughs> all came out here and kind of told stories together. So it was a it was a, it was a wonderful get together for us now that we're in our later years. Tara. Oh, and we That's hope. Awesome. Um, Come April, uh, I'm mentioning this Thank now. you so much for, for <laughs> yeah. Uh, come April uh, 2024, it looks like uh, the two of us will be out uh, in Knoxville for an X-Men event. So that'll be fun. Just if, if anyone happens to be around, you and I can communicate about that closer to yeah, absolutely. when it happens. Yeah, 
Oh, yeah, here's, here's you, alumni trophies up here somewhere. <laughs> you're showing me all that. I, I have a question that I wonder because uh, you remember, of course, UTA. I mean, down the road from where you and I grew up. Oh my I, had, God. I, I had to go over there for something. It was, uh, I think, I was probably either uh, later high school, early junior college. You know, Tarrant County College. Mm -hmm. And I went into the student union building because I was waiting. Uh, you know, to, to meet the appointment. And in that uh, student lounge, so to speak, there were all these eight foot banquet tables set up and they had boxes sitting on the tables and they were original cells from Warner brothers uh, cartoons. Now think about this, the original hand painted cells, just boxes and boxes and boxes. And they were asking, I think like $10 a piece. Now they go for hundreds or thousands. And so in thinking about that and what, what a poor insight I had, I should have bought every box that they had because they were authentic. Uh, but then it made me, how did they get there to, I, I really don't, you know, they weren't pirated. Uh, they were the actual colored cells of all the, the Warner brother characters. Somebody had them in and they were selling them by the cell. And so, but I, I wondered, and I know that you're on the writing side in the production, but back in the day, what happened to all that stuff that you wrote for? Uh, like, did Disney save all of that in an archive somewhere, or do you have any cells of some of the shows you wrote for? How did how did that work? I'm I'm leaning back here to reference stuff. I will tell you uh, when when we got tapped uh, when we got the call uh, from Marvel Disney about the. Um, the X-Men, the art and making of the animated series, uh, got a call saying, hey, would you two be interested in in doing, oh, I'll back up, please. So 2017, Eric wrote, previously on X-Men, the, you know, the making of an animated series. It is a dense oral history. Uh, he interviewed everybody he could about the, because it was, a, it was, a, that was our love letter, because X-Men had been sold off for parts after Marvel had financial issues. And there was no studio support behind X-Men, the animated series, like there was Warner's with Batman or Paramount with Star Trek. And I realized uh, we had, we had all the old scripts uh, in boxes above our garage. Didn't have the art, but we had, well, we had the storyboards, but we didn't have the actual art because that was all hand painted overseas. So Eric wrote that book, uh, Fair Use, and what that means is uh, we tried to call, we, we actually did reach out to Marvel and other places saying, hey, Eric, we're interested in writing a book about the making of X-Men. No one wanted to participate because no one had all the rights in one place. So the, this book comes out, uh, thank you, Jacobs Brown Publishing. And then about a year later, Eric gets an email from Marvel Studios vice president in charge of global licensing. And it's like, oh, they're about to drop a hammer on us. Oh, no, this is not going to be good. Turns out the folks there had found Eric's book and they really liked it. And they, they said, now that we have all the rights together in one place, we are going to do a coffee table book. Would you two like to do the coffee table book? In other words, it's going to happen with or without you, but would you guys like to do it? We, we really like what you've done. We, you know, you are X-Men people. 
we jumped on it. Then the realization hit, where's the art? You know, we have, you know, stuff, we have our stuff, but um, Larry Houston and a couple of the other artists just by luck had some storage units over the years where they had, they would have art, uh, they would have cells and we were able to use those. Tragically, what happened, the storage of a cell uh, is, is not casual. Uh, the paint can melt, they can stick together. It, it, you have, it costs a lot of money to pay for the storage of cell art. Disney does that, you know, with their stuff. I'm assuming Warner Brothers does, but by the time X-Men was over, again, Marvel was selling things off for parts. There was, I think there was cell storage for about a year and then not interested in paying for it anymore. And boxes were just removed. And I understand um, when the offices where the artists were for X-Men, when that job was over and that and they moved out and the next shows moved in, there were there were just boxes of X-Men cells sitting there that hadn't made it down to the dumpster yet for and some people managed to grab a few of those. There is a wonderful art gallery uh, here in Southern California called Van Eaton Galleries. And they were a, the tremendous source for us on the cell front. They are a huge animation cell um, collector distributor uh, gallery. They do them. They are amazing people to work with. But <laughs> Boy, boy, Kenny, if I could get in that time machine and go back with you. Can you imagine? <laughs> can Can you imagine what that would be worth per cell? Oh, what What do you think God. right now for a, for cells like that, especially with the enthusiast Comic Con? What could a cell one cell bring these days? Probably, you know, for the main characters. Oh, I I can tell you, um, a partial cell, a partial cell for an, and by partial I mean, um. You know, I when you don't even have the background, when you don't have the complete cell, you just have like uh, the painting of the character. Uh, you know, those partial cells can easily start at three hundred dollars, and then the more you add to that, or if there's more than one character, or if there's background, if you have the actual original background painting, I mean, these things go for thousands. It's now, nuts. in the book, so with that being the fact that a lot of the cells were lost yeah, and that type of thing. Uh, in the book, you have a lot of uh, full, like these are uh, double page. Uh, you can see that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now are those all cells or how did you accumulate this to actually put it in the book? Some of that is um, screen capture from the DVDs that were released. There was, there were DVD sets that were released. Unfortunately, we still don't have a box set or a Blu-ray set for the series. So I'm putting that out into the ether. <laughs> hey, wouldn't it be neat to have a box set of Blu-ray or 4K or whatever? Um, and also in the book, if I can, my favorite is, well, my favorite big thing, if I can find it here, is the spread with, um, you're more towards the middle. Uh, this is fascinating. I can, oh, here we go. This this one right here, for fans of the Phoenix Saga, 
from the series. This this is a this is a triple cell, hand painted. Uh, I mean, it, this is that your is, your husband's favorite episode? Or oh, uh, I'm gonna say for him, speaking for him, there's one called a uh, One Man's Worth. No, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. This, but the the Phoenix was uh, like two hours long, wasn't it? Oh yeah, but it's uh, Dark Phoenix and Phoenix uh, ended up being a. a, a five-parter and a four-parter i mean basically ended up being nine half-hour episodes that ran over the course of um, two seasons and for a lot of fans that's you know the, the story that got told oh i can tell you okay for folks who actually watched it then who are now a little bit older <laughs> when the show the show took chances and one of the chances was in telling the phoenix saga uh, Jean Grey dies, and it's and, and she sacrifices herself by flying herself into the sun so she doesn't cause any harm because she's bad things are going to happen, and she sacrifices herself, and it's it's a, a shattering moment for the remaining X Men. So, <laughs> given the uh, the vagaries of animation, sometimes an episode would come in from overseas and you call retakes, and you say you need to fix this one. The guys walk in the wrong direction. You know the paint colors wrong. The episode called "No Man Is My, No Mutant Is My Island" was supposed to be the next episode in the Phoenix because that was supposed to be the episode where Cyclops is profoundly grieving. He's just broken that Gene is now dead. That episode came back and it was so badly done that uh, Stephanie Graziano, the head of the Graz Entertainment, the, the production company handling the day-to-day stuff of this. She fought for two years to get the production company <laughs> to fix that episode. Well, okay, that happened. Some episodes ran late, but if you were a kid watching the show uh, back when it aired, you would see the the tragedy of the death of Jean Grey, and then the next episode the next week was just whatever the I, I forget which one aired, but it was just oh, and Jean's back, no explanation, just oh you know. Then two years later. No Mutant is an Island finally airs. And it's like they're all grieving the death of Jean Grey. And it's like, did, wait, did, did she die? You know, so, thank God there was no internet because the message boards would have blown up with folks going, what is going on? But um, yeah, if you can find, you, you can find original cells out there. Uh, I would encourage folks to be scrupulous and you know, make sure you're, you're buying from someone who's um, uh, a reputable person. But this stuff is going away. They're not making more of it. And uh, with today's animation, it's all done in computer. There are no cells being made currently for today's animation. Now, so. You know, I, I have a theory, Julia, mm. that here's what's going to happen. There's going to be some wonder child in Hollywood who's going to go. I, I really think this is probably going to happen because there. Well, let me just say what the theory is first and then why I think this. <laughs> that there's going to be a wonder child show up in Hollywood and he's, or she's going to say, I've got this idea. What we're going to do is we're going to tell a story. It's going to be a fantasy and it's going to be hand drawn on Myler film. And we're going to put it together and we're going to take photographs of every single drawing and put it together in a series to where it actually forms live action. It's going to be amazing. They're going to say, you're a genius. You know, 
So, but here's why I say that, because, you know, in, in Tarrant County Junior College back then, it was called Tarrant County Junior College. I took two years of photography under Bob Lamb, the, the professor there. His wife had been my a, uh, annual staff sponsor when I was in junior high. And so she used Bob's studio to allow us to learn how to do photography for ourselves and develop our own stuff. So anyway, but there's something different about light being pushed through an actual thing than the digital creation of it and pushed through a liquid crystal projection. And so, and it's a different look when you see something that's actually watching Rudolph that was, you know, stop motion, mm -hmm. actual photographs, uh, even way back to, uh, uh, not Looney Tunes, but uh, Mary Melody. Because as a kid, I would wonder, wait, how are they doing this to where the background scene, it looks like they're running and it was on a cylinder. But so I think there's something to it in the same way that audiophiles, if you're a true audiophile, you're going to have a turntable. Uh, Jack White, uh, he lives here in Nashville. Uh, I can take you to his house. Don't tell him I know where it is, but everybody knows where Jack's house is. Um, but, you know, he has uh, a record pressing plant, two of them, I think two, uh, Third Man Records. And Jack is calling on all of the, the record companies to go back to making LPs. He's got a huge waiting list and he's willing to give up some of the market share. So I think the, the creativity and the art, artistry of actually the, the thing that made it happen, it, it has an impact on actually what you're watching. And so do you sense that yourself? I mean, you're in that world, you, you've grown up in that world. What, what do you think about that? Purely from an, from an industry standpoint, uh, I can get real cynical here and say, it, it is always about the money. It is always about the money. And the fact that computers exist now and, you know, you can get a program and, it'll, you know, and it th you can do things that we couldn't imagine doing just here and not, not have you know, over 100,000 cells hand-painted per episode. I mean, that, but it's so labor-intensive. But I'm not going to, uh, but I agree with you. I think there is, the way, the way we take in content, content, the way we take in things, uh, depending on how we see it or hear it for the first time, it, it makes a different kind of impact, impact or impression on us. I really believe that. I agree with you. Now, if that young wonder can, can come up with a way to make hand-painted cells <laughs> for a reasonable price, that would be that would well, be a genius move. There you go. You know, I came into Nashville for a meeting, and while I was here, I wanted to see Johnny Cash's house, and it had literally just burnt out there on uh, Lake Hickory. I, I couldn't believe it. It was three slabs on the side of the the the, the lake there. Uh, literally had just burnt, and uh, Barry Gibbs had bought it, and a guy remodeling the house uh, doing work for Gibbs. They left some equipment in the garage. It came on in the night and ran, caught fire, and burnt the place down. But then on top of that, um, uh, that I went to the Ryman, you know, the, the mother church, the original building. And it just so happens that I got in right before they were having a huge gospel show, Vince Gill, uh, the guy, just all these big names were performing. But they said, you know, you can just stay an hour because we've got to get you out of here. They're getting ready to do the show. So the guy, uh, his name is Richie. He was with uh, the group Lone Star. 
Um, but he sang gospel also. So I go upstairs to the, the to the balcony and the sound guy sitting there and this guy, Richie, he's standing there talking to him about his gear. And he said, uh, you know, and he had a, they had the big Yamaha console, you know, the digital console. It's like the PM one or whatever. And, you know, that's kind of some of my background that I've done in churches. And he said, but the guy from the, the singer said, you know, my wife for Christmas bought me all analog gear from my man cave. And he said, she bought me a, a, an A-track tape player, a cassette player, a reel-to-reel. And he goes, it's amazing. So the guy from, uh, he was with actually Gaylord Entertainment, who was running the show there at the Ryman. And he said, uh, sir, he said, you know, rocker Alice Cooper, you know, the, the rock star. He said he performed here a while back. He said, Alice only travels with analog gear back at that time. And he said that the difference in this room, he said, this room came alive, the analog. And he said, so it makes a difference. So Richie said, well, look, I've got to go. He said, they're calling me, you know, so he leaves. Well, I'm thought I'm standing right here. Here's the guy from Gaylord Entertainment. And I said, well, is it that much of a difference? Does it make that different, much of a difference, sir? And he said, he looked straight at me and he said, sir, he said, the human brain does not like digital. He said the sine wave of audio sine wave, a true sine wave agrees with the human mind. He said, your mind, though, it's just a little, you know, an audio track is just a snippet of what actually was, you know, like one three thousandths of, a, of the project or whatever. It's sampled out of there. He says, and though you don't hear it, he said, your mind senses the off and on pulse. He said, it's there. And I said, well, that's amazing. And then he looked at me and he said, but, and then he hit the, the back then they had a floppy drive. He popped it out and he picked it up and he said, but this is tonight's show, the mix. <laughs> he said, so we're going digital. But anyway, I, I appreciate that. And I, I think that uh, the, the nature of it though, and I guess really what it point, points to, and I wanted to be sure and bring this out because it's, it's through the book is the fact and we talk about, you know, the writer's strike, it sounds like was finally settled. And one of the big questions in it is AI. And I think something that, that Eric pointed out uh, more than once through his writing heard over the whole, the, 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 he wasn't the producer, but he was the mind. He, he was the guardian of the scripts, the guardian of the story um, and saying, we're going to keep these people human. And let me see if I can find his, uh, comment because i think it's really telling because at one point i think it's in season three that uh let me see if i can get this get small again but in in season three it's actually in the next page i'll, I'll edit this out because i'm going to read this that eric um actually chapter four in chapter four this is about season three eric re-emphasizes the pathos the commitment to emotional energy and I'm quoting, it says the characters care about their mission, their friends and their place in the world. And he goes on to say to succeed, we must take these characters seriously, make our comic book, superhero mutants, real adult people. And that I, I think that that's what made the thing work. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but made the series work is that there were human beings who were grown people writing things geared at the time towards children, but really to all ages. But the reason why the series worked is because of the pathos and the emotion and the human aspect of it that 
he wrote herd over to make sure that that stayed a part of the story. And, and if I'm not wrong, what I remember in the book is also, you know, of course, with any action, you know, movie or, or video or animation series, there's a lot of movement. But one of the things up front that Eric and the team established is that it was going to, going to be first about the stories of these people who, um, uh, let me go back here and I'll edit this out too. But, um, let me zoom in. Uh, well, if I can get to it, let me see. Um, and like I said, I'll edit this out. Uh, season one. Okay. Okay. Because Eric right up front, the great quote is the X-Men story was more about the lives of the characters values of friendship, loyalty, and personal sacrifice, whatever the cost, they do what they must do. And actually the, the, uh, uh, the, if you want to say the thesis or the background, the, the, the premise of the story is extraordinary people feared and attacked for their innate differences who struggle to act heroically often at a personal expense. And so what's cool is that, and to me, Julia, something that really stood out in the book is the human element of the things that we all take for granted. We go to the movies, we pay our money, we we enjoy the show. Uh, you know, if it's something we really like, we tell others about it. And we really forget that behind the scenes, as you wonderfully bring out in the book, that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people making this little time of of escape possible but also to them, they take what they're doing very seriously. And if they're successful, and I think this would probably could be a truism, that if they're successful, it's because they do have the human element involved and that they're fighting to keep things moving forward in the proper way, not allowing people to degrade. And, and something you pointed out earlier in the conversation is that, that Marvel had tried to get things off the ground uh, all these ideas and stuff that kept derailing it, good ideas, but not great. And then the right team was assembled in secret, really, that that uh, the, the Margaret understood, wait, these people can make this happen. And then it came to life and it had legs and it had it. it and, and something that, that you point out in the book is that from the get go, it became the number one series. It took Fox television children from fourth place to first place. And so I, I think that is really an overarching theme that I get from reading the book. And um, so it, it's encouraging because it causes you to look at things differently. Even something that we say, well, as simple as animation. Well, if it's done right, it's really not simple at all. And, um, you know, Bless so to you. me, that's, <laughs> Bless I'll, you for that. I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Oh, no, 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 no. It, and again, this is entertainment, but in terms of how it's it's about communicating and and that's fundamentally how we connect with each other on a in our lives on a personal level. How do you communicate with your family and friends? How do you meet people? How do you become friends with people? How do you work with people? It's it's communication. And I'm incredibly proud to be able to um, work in creating um, things that entertain people, but also I hope 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 uh, uh, help people 
communicate and connect connect with each other too. Um, we we've been thinking about the X Men a lot, you know, in, in the last few years, and truly, um, the there you have the nice you have the the fabulous costumes and the magic powers that can blow stuff up, but the stories that Eric was committed to telling were stories that communicated about each character's uh, own person and personal struggles. And in what matters more in a story, character or conflict? Well, your character is your conflict. It, it, artificial conflict doesn't matter, but tell me about that character and make that character matter to me. And then I'll follow you anywhere. And it's, it's easy to forget that. Uh, but um, X-Men really was uh, remarkable in that we were aiming for Saturday morning kids. You know, that was what that was then. But discovering in the ratings, we were getting college students. We were getting parents watching with their kids. We were getting adults watching this. It was hitting whatever the magic quadrants are because X-Men was, we were, Margaret Lesh, God bless her, was saying, you do not write down to kids. You write this like a one-hour live-action drama. You write up. And that was, that, that was uh, the silver bullet that just shot the rest of us out of the gate and said, okay, no one has ever said that to me in the universe that I write in. Oh, this is going to be good. And yeah, you know, you've got, again, I keep saying you've got, oh, you know, sparkly powers and people who can fly, but it really comes down to the, 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 the communication between the characters and what matters to them and, and how they fight for that, how they sometimes lose, how they have to compromise. And again, it's a Saturday morning kids show, but I think X-Men really uh, was, was groundbreaking in telling those kinds of stories at that time. Well, you know, you saying that the things that work today, um, because, you know, having grandchildren, we have four grandchildren now. The oldest one is Kate. She's eight and she's Kate the great. She's eight. But the things that I find myself drawn to that I will actually want to sit down with the grandchildren and watch are shows like Bluey. You know, it's a huge thing right now, but, when you watch Bluey as a parent, like when they're playing doctor with the dad and the dad's trying to, it's his nap time. And so they're jumping on him and they're trying to give him shots and he's actually asleep or trying to be asleep. So as an adult, we relate Daniel Tiger's neighborhood, which is a spinoff of, of Mr. Rogers neighborhood. I mean, I love that. Uh, the little bear, what's it called? Bear with a little, little bear, of course. And also the Berenstain bears and, of course, a huge one, uh, mouse, and you know, if you give a mouse a cookie, mm. uh, you know, I think they're they're well written, and my grandkids want to watch them over and over, and uh, but then back probably some of the episodes that you actually wrote because uh, the New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh and some of the original stuff that's on Disney, uh, you know, we love, and and especially as I age, it's like wait, there's a lot going on here, and so <laughs> I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head that. When it's well written and it's geared towards the the you know not a little kid mind, 
um, it's written to the human mind and it connects on all levels. I did want to ask you, my wife gave me a note and I think it's a really good note. Uh, did your parents uh, live to see your success in Hollywood? Oh, that is, oh, that is such a, that's such a kind question. And I appreciate that. I got to tell you, it, uh, and I, I'm so grateful that, that you, you knew them. Um, 1983, the year I'm graduating law school, um, my mom died of cancer. And boy, that, that was my uh, origin story in terms of just having the, the wind knocked out of me. Uh, fortunately, my, um, my, my dad and the rest of my family did uh, live long enough to, to be there uh, for when these things started happening. And that, that was thrilling. I will admit, and I, I used to tease him, sadly dad passed um, in 2004, but uh, he, he, he was the first to admit he never quite, un, he never quite got comfortable with the fact that what Eric and I do is, is freelance. You know, we're going from this job here, we're going from that job there. He's like, can't you just stay in one place? <laughs> because that's, you know, when he was growing up, that, that's how you had a secure career. <laughs> that, that's not how it works out here, but, but he was, we were again, very grateful that he got to, to see and share that with us. Well, do you feel comfortable going a little longer? Am I taking, do you need to Are get off okay? here in just a minute? I, where, is this not too long for you or is no, I, not, not for me, but I always try to be sensitive. I mean, we ask for an hour, but uh, are we a little over a little over an hour right now, which is not a big deal for Myron at 15, but I did have a few more questions. Okay, let's, let's I, 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 I don't want to belabor the point, but uh, I did want to ask you uh, just out of kind of the technical side, mm. uh, the book uh, is amazing. And uh, again, with my color deficiency, it's like, it's hard to describe, especially when you're colorblind, that then when you see things that are rich in color, it's almost like I'm eating chocolate. And there's, I think there's a, my daughter-in-law said that there's something neurologically, it's almost like it, it, it produces things in my head, not synesthesia, but whatever. Something like that. maybe, or uh, I, no. I don't know. It's just, it, it's like, it's uh, palatable to me. You know, the colors are palatable. And so, but I was curious, a uh, huge undertaking to me, you know, my father was in printing and uh, he was a lithographer and a master lithographer. And I mean, if he were to see this, I mean, you know, hundreds of hours of work. So I'm curious, you were, I, I kind of get the impression, just the voice I'm reading, it, it seems to me it's you uh, for the most part. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Don't, don't want to offend Eric, but I think it's, <laughs> it's you. But what was the mechanics of actually taking this from the idea? You already said that the artwork that you had to assemble was scattered across the world, so to speak. Oh, you did have a lot of the scripts. You did have some of the storyboards, which mm -hmm. are amazing. Um, I find it fascinating that these cats could sit there and on it, I guess it's literally a piece of cardboard, a board, and they draw. But how how did you make this book happen? How did you assemble? And we don't need to go into too deep a detail, but it's, I mean, being on an annual staff to knowing what it takes to, you got to determine the placement of, I mean, that's a simple thing, but the photograph and text and format, how on earth did you do that? Just in a kind of nutshell, if you can. Quickly, huge shout out to Eric Klopfler at Abrams Books, because he was our editor at Abrams and he himself, thank God, was a big X-Men animated series fan. So we got, we worked directly with him and so, hi, 
I, I tease, I call him Book Eric, just to separate him from husband Eric, but so, hi, Book Eric. Um, yeah, uh, we're gonna make a book. So how do we make a book? <laughs> and uh, Abrams, this particular branch of Abrams, he was kind and sent us uh, the, the art of uh, a few other books that they had done, uh, one for uh, Bojack Horseman and a couple other animated shows. So we got an idea of what it could look like. Then Eric and I sat down and said, okay, what would be a table of contents? What, how, how do we sequentially tell it? How do we tell the story? How do we sequentially tell the story? How do we explain it so it makes sense? And so come up with sort of a bullet points for things that we think are important to touch on in the telling of the, the making, the art and the making of the show. Then back and forthing on that, uh, working with Van Eaton Galleries was so helpful at the beginning. They, they have a great deal, they have a lot of X-Men art and they, let, uh, they sent us uh, the digital files of, of what they had. So it's like, okay, we, ha we, we, we know we have some of this art and then digging through Larry Houston's garage, um, his, his storage sheds and then uh, a, another uh, fella who himself had boxes of this, but it was all curling up and you know, it was just in someone's garage. It was not stored directly. Then, okay, um, we kind of knew we wanted to at least mention each episode, which we do later in the book, you know, want like a few pictures of each, every episode in a little thumbnail. And then getting, so that, okay, let's say we do that. Then the telling of the story, how do we get up to it? And uh, how do we explain what it was like making a 1990s animated series? How do we at least get enough information in there so the young kids today have some understanding of the hours of you know human labor, the hand drawing, the hand, the oh that doesn't look like Cyclops. It needs to be drawn again. You know those those kinds of distinctions. So uh, sat down with. I like writing on. I like brainstorming on a yellow legal pad. Uh, so sitting there with a yellow legal pad, you know, and then bouncing back and forth and coming up with um, ideas for what a table of contents could be, working with uh, Book Eric, say, okay, uh, if you do this, then can you do that? Can we do this? Can we do that? That may not be the most eloquent way of describing it, but it was <laughs> my, dear, my dear late mother had a phrase, you know, how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time. So we're looking at this elephant and he goes, well, we're going to need, okay, how do we eat this elephant? One bite at a time. So taking So, but I, I get the impression it was, was it hundreds of hours? It appears yeah. to me it would have been. Yeah. I'm going to say at least, at least um, a year, uh, gathering the materials, uh, writing uh, the bit from the book, uh, then, then getting the book, uh, getting ever, all the <laughs> hundreds of pieces, you know, laid out in the book, working, with Abrams book and books and um, yeah, yeah, proud labor of love, but it, it, it was. <laughs> now, so, but that leads me into really, we can wrap up with this because I get the impression it's something that you, you do a lot now are the comic cons. And I'm going to admit to you, I hear a lot about Tom. I didn't even know. I thought it was comic con. What's a comic, but it's comic cons. Uh, I don't know anything about them. I know they're hugely successful. And so you, I actually, I guess, go to 
comic cons and you talk about your book, you talk about the series. So, mm-hmm. uh, kind of wrapping up, what's that world like? And, and you've done hundreds of my, to understand that correctly. Um, I wouldn't, I, I don't, I can't say we've done hundreds, but, okay. uh, but <laughs> this, this is me getting my nose out of joint. Um, so since X-Men came out in the early 90s, you know, uh, Eric would be invited to speak on a panel or I would be invited to speak on a panel, you know, and, you know, everything from, you know, uh, I've been invited to speak on women in animation panels, that kind of thing, invited as guests to appear on a panel. That's a very nice, that's a very nice thing. And in 2017, 2015, I was looking at the calendar, realizing we were coming up on an X-Men anniversary. And I don't have the math in my head to tell you which one, 20th, 25th, whatever it was, it was coming up. I thought, you know, hey, um, I started keeping track of various cons and and they are, you can probably find multiple con, multiple comic cons on any weekend all over the place. So there was a, a con that was going to be happening in Los Angeles. This is not the big San Diego con. Um, and and I called and introduced myself and said, you know, it looks like there's a, we're having an X-Men anniversary. Would you be interested in having us present a panel? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's kind of, yeah, no. No, thanks for calling, but yeah, we, we're not interested. I'm hanging up the phone. <laughs> That's not going to happen again. But at that time, we didn't have either of the books. You know, we are not the voice talent. We are not the artists. We don't have art to sell you. We don't have uh, sketches to, to autograph. So that was for me a moment when I kind of started pushing Eric to to create what became Freebie Fan X-Men, the oral history. That then gave us an entree to attend cons and say, hey, we've we've written this, this book got written and we can talk in granular detail about the making of X-Men, the animated series. And then with the second book coming out, okay. And and our good friend, Larry Houston goes to cons constantly, um, which is wonderful. So that that gave us a way to kind of be in the cons, like at a table, you know, or, or running several panels. And that's, you know, I kind of laugh that that's our love residual. We have had the most remarkable, heartwarming moments with people who come up and share what X-Men or any of the other shows we worked on meant to them in ways that are astonishing heartbreaking yeah there are and and yet sharing that is it's it is so wonderful it is so exceptional to be able to 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 talk with people about this and we've had folks who oh i i used to watch that show with my father and he's gone now but now i'm watching on disney plus with my own children it's like oh my to be Part of that for someone in their life is is a thing I couldn't have imagined, and I'm 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 humbled. I'm humbled. I'm humbled, and I'm grateful, and I'm thrilled, and it means the world to me that that we get to talk with folks about that. Grateful well, every day. 
I tell you, I tell you, it's been so encouraging to talk to you, Julia, and I deeply appreciate you opening up your time to us and uh, talking candidly about your life. And uh, it's very inspiring to me. And I really feel like that as people watch this video, uh, they're going to be encouraged on a lot of different levels. I would encourage you. Uh, and I always want to say this because some, some people say, well, you know, he's he's getting sponsorship or whatever. I, we don't take any money from anything we do uh, like this. Uh, we're supported and our ministry is supported by the people that donate to our ministry. Uh, and that makes this possible through Transform the City. But I, I do want to recommend uh, the book. And I tell you, it is a coffee table book, uh, but it's more than just photographs. There's an interesting story that's wound all through it. I'm sorry. Oh, you can't see it. Can you see it now? Yeah. But really well done, uh, really well produced. And uh, I'm very impressed that you actually pulled this off. Uh, it's a major undertaking. But I do thank you so much for being on the program and uh, sharing your story. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again. I would love that. That would that would be wonderful. This has been such a treat. I hope I haven't talked your ear off here. I can go on I, for a while. I, I've enjoyed it. Well, my friends. Oh, wait, she's got something. Oh, there it she is. another book. Julia Roberts, Trinity High School, 76, senior year for me, junior year for you. Junior year. <laughs> I, I tell you. And I, I, maybe we can dedicate this show today. And I think Tom is still, I hope he doesn't take offense to this. I think he's still alive. But I, I think it may be even be appropriate. Oh, wait, have you got, let, look at that. the albums here. I have two of the albums, uh, 70. Oh, let's see, 74 to 75 and 75 to 76. And Thomas Nugent. Thomas Nugent. And I tell you, um, today, um, well, let me just say that, think about this, folks. And this is a lesson that, that we can really drive home today, that here I am, 64. I graduated how many years ago? I was 18 when I graduated. So, wow. I mean, 40, whatever. I don't do math. But like 45 years ago, 46 years ago, do the math, Susan. <laughs> but to this day, uh, that man, Tom Nugent, uh, so impacted my life, Julia's life, and everybody, how long? 46. 46 years ago, since I graduated. And I tell you, Tom Nugent, um, if, if you were not, he called uh, people that didn't practice slackers, and uh, he kind of ran things like a drill sergeant. But you know what was interesting, and, and we I'm not finishing just yet because I want Julia to comment on this, but for those of us who practiced our horns and were prepared, uh, he was very kind. And only to the children that uh, didn't really take things seriously, uh, he would bear down on them hard uh, to bring out the best in them. But to think about that, that, that someone who was a school teacher, band director, uh, to have that kind of impact and influence – uh, I think says a lot. And Julia has already testified that what she gained from him and being in that environment actually is foundational to the person that she is. And I absolutely can say that. And my sons are bearing the, the benefits from it. And uh, I've reached out to both Tom Nugent and then my band director in junior high, Joe Gunn, um, who, who, who taught me music. So, um, it's, it's, I guess really it's the kind of legacy that I want to leave. And I think that what Julia is saying, but Julia, you have the final word and then I'll close this out with a salutation. I always do. If I'm going to have the final word here as 
assistant drum major under Ben Fast with Bobby Francis. <laughs> and he's uh, a director of bands that uh, was, as far as I know, Tarrant, uh, Texas Christian and, University. Yes. Huge, huge. Uh, this is going to be call and response. Okay. Can let's see if, if I can pull it off and you can pull it off. Okay. Drill, positions of attention, heels together, stomach in, shoulders back. Uh, yeah, okay. Head up, chin in. <laughs> you let me down there, Kenny. I, well, I tell you, I I was probably, I mean, I was always in, in sync, uh, but I oh, was no, you were. Yeah, it's just, but that's the kind of thing 40, nearly 50 years later, the, the, the kind of Mr. Nugent. taught you to taught you how to require uh, certain levels of, of commitment and um, discipline from yourself, making it out here, uh, whatever I've been able to accomplish, it, it, that's been fundamental to me is uh, um, having that kind of discipline and commitment and, and whatever else we're talking about, the joy, the joy of having been with a group of other people who were just as, you know, but for the slackers, we know who you were. <laughs> but the joy of being out there, sweating. Oh, okay. Quick story here, Kenny. Do you remember this? Because I, I think they made it. It's a different. It's a different universe. But 40, 45 years ago, you know, you had to go out for practice in in the hottest days of of Texas late summer, early fall, <laughs> there would no discussion, but there would be a bottle of salt tablets uh, on the chalkboard railing as you walk out and, and you were on your, you were supposed to know because there was no Gatorade back then for us. <laughs> you needed to take your salt tablets because you're going to go out there and you're going to sweat and you're either going to faint or you're going to keep going. <laughs> I just remember that. <laughs> wow. Us kids were supposed to. Okay, I guess I need to take a salt tablet. <laughs> but again, that was it was again self-discipline. What do you need to do to get through this? How are you gonna do how are you gonna get through this? Yeah. Well, I'm boy, we're now we're rolling, but you know, <laughs> I, I made all state band my junior and senior year, and which was in Texas, it was a big deal. So yeah. our our senior year, um, they schedule us a flight on um Southwest Airlines, okay. So the the first year, I think we went down by van. So the second year, my senior year, they flew us down there. Now think about this, Julie. This is what you're talking about. They flew us in 1977 with no sponsors. We weren't, none of us were adults. And they flew us with no sponsors. We had to take, well, it was Ben Fast. And no, I was a senior, so Ben was graduated, but it was Chuck Garrison. Jennifer, Jennifer yeah, Chuck Garrett's and Jennifer. And so it's at San Antonio. The Texas Music Education Educators Association is always at TMA, is at San Antonio, still is. And so we take a cab, kids, and the cab driver knew we didn't know where we were going. So the cab ride there was like $40. The cab ride back was like 10 And I said, well, wait, why is it so much cheaper? And he said, well, the other guy just drove you around because we didn't know we were that close to the airport. So we get to the hotel, we check in, we have no sponsors staying with us in the room. Okay. Because we were those type of kids. We were good kids. Oh, no. And so I, 
I'm sorry. So I, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm saying you're right. You're good, responsible kids. Yeah. Yeah. And so one night I'm on the Texas River Walk there in San Antonio, and I run into Tom Nugent, our band director, and he stops and he runs into me and he looks up at me because it's kind of dark on the river walk. And he said, Kenny Price, are you behaving? I said, yes, sir, I am. Good. Keep it up. And that was the last I saw him. And uh, so, uh, wow, what memories. But again, um, and Julia, you said, and, and we'll close with this, but talking about um, that camaraderie, that community, and that speaks to the book. It speaks to the things that influenced us. And I tell you, folks, in these times uh, that are hard and at the beginning of the series, when you read in the book that the world uh, that they're casting as far as what the X-Men lived in, and I won't go into it now, but it's like you're reading a prophetic word about the world we're living in. And so I thought, boy, that's telling. But in the midst of it, the, the encouraging thing that keeps us all motivated to live another day is that camaraderie that you use, that word, and community and uh, the love and the emotion. And as Julia shared at the Comic-Cons is those relationships that people let them know that, hey, this is how your work has impacted us for good. And so let's let that be an encouragement in these hard times to be those type of people. And with that, I bid you peace.